You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the three hundred men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when Yahweh has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbeheh, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon the son of Joash returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As Yahweh lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw 
in it the earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was seventeen hundred shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it, and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again, and whored after the Baals, and made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their god, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabal, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. That's where I live. That's where I record. I record right out of my house. And I am doing so as I speak. Today is Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. Yesterday was Labor Day here in the U.S. And that was Judges 8 that I just read. Judges 8 and the rest of the scope of Gideon, who was judge over Israel at a time when they were so oppressed by Midian that they had to build places to hide themselves and their food into the mountains and the caves and their strongholds. They had to hide their food or else the Midianites, the people of the East, would swoop down like locusts, it says, and take everything. And there was Gideon two chapters ago being called by the angel of the Lord, a mighty man of valor, as he is preparing grain to hide it. And essentially, if I can paraphrase, he says, who, me? (laughs) At first, he doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't realize he's talking to the angel of Yahweh. And then it dawns on him at a certain point that this is not just some random stranger. He's respectful, but he's also a bit cynical. And then He realizes after he brings the gift and the gift is disposed of in a very supernatural way, in a very miraculous way, he realizes he's just been speaking to the angel of Yahweh and he is afraid and God speaks to him and says, don't be afraid. And what follows in the chapter preceding this one is victory, but victory after 32,000 men are trimmed down to just 300. According to God, 32,000 is too many. And how many of the enemy were killed? 120,000. So 32,000 seems like quite a lot until you realize 32,000 against 120,000, those are long odds. Even if you are a disciplined fighting force with the best commander, those are 
difficult odds. But what does God say? He says, it's too many. I don't want you and Israel to think that you have done this on your own, by your own strength. And so God orders that essentially 99 plus percent be sent home, leaving less than 1% of the original 32,000. And with that less than 1% of the men who showed up, God delivers Israel by their hand. And it's not either or. God does deliver Israel and also Gideon delivers Israel because God allows Gideon to deliver Israel. And if that's forgotten, there are major problems. And it would seem as though after the victory here in Judges 8, it is somewhat forgotten with the way that it's described that Gideon says, no, I will not be a ruler over you, even though Israel is very impressed. And you can see that they're crediting Gideon with this victory. They want to make him the ruler over Israel. He says, no, I will not be a ruler over you. Neither will my sons. But one thing I would ask is give me the golden earrings that you took for plunder after we defeated Midian. Give me the gold earrings. And they say, sure, okay, that's fine. He gets quite a lot of gold, a very significant amount of gold from Israel giving him those golden earrings. But then what does he do with the gold? What does he do with the pendants that are taken from the camels of these Midianite kings? He turns all of the above into an ephod. And if you'll remember, an ephod is this kind of sleeveless vest that is part of the priestly attire. It's part of the uniform that the priests are to wear. The priests to Yahweh, God commanded that an ephod be made, in fact, for the high priest to wear. And why is Gideon making an ephod? For that matter, how does it come to be that an ephod becomes an idol? I don't understand that. I really don't. You have here the condensed symbol of a victory over the enemy of Israel. Really, it should be a reminder that God delivered Israel and God made of you someone worth remembering, someone worth talking about. You were in obscurity, hiding grain, and God called you a mighty man of valor and called you to this great task, which he then enabled you to do, and you did it. And that's what the ephod should remind you of, is God's goodness. And yet, somehow, at a certain point, it doesn't. Somehow, the memory gets fuzzy, and this ephod, instead of being a reminder of Yahweh's strength, Yahweh's power, Yahweh's might, it becomes a snare. It becomes an idol for Gideon and his household and all Israel. In verse 27, all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. This phrasing here is jarring for many, particularly if you grew up in the church, you grew up in a Christian family. We don't talk like that. That would be a great way to get your mouth washed out with soap. You do not use the word whore, even if the shoe fits. And yet it's 80 plus times found in the Old Testament to describe typically 
idolatry, which is to say, when you're reaching for the strongest possible language, rather, when God is giving us the strongest possible language to describe what idolatry is, spiritually speaking, in relation to him, the word is whoring or hoard or whore. But not to get caught up on that, they shouldn't have forgotten God. And they did. What's curious too here is all of the reasons why God trimmed down a force of 32,000 to just 300 plus Gideon are shown to be valid, even though you didn't necessarily perceive it before God trimmed down 32,000 and made them 300 instead against Midian, against 120,000, which by the way are 400 to one odds, quick math. But you may not have understood and appreciated how real the danger was of Israel taking all the credit, Gideon taking the credit for defeating Midian, even with having defeated 120,000 with 300, or even if you would say that 300 was the initial sortie, and then when it comes to pursuing, then the 32,000 get engaged. I don't know if that's even valid. Either way, there is still a falling away, even with that mitigation. How much worse would the falling away have been without that mitigation? And yet, we find Gideon says, I will not be a ruler over you, but what I will take is the gold. And when he does take the gold, what is that kind of implying? It's kind of implying that you owe me, right? You owe me, which implies that actually it was Gideon who delivered Israel. So it's not commented on, and it's not rebuked, it's not objected to by God, and yet you can glean from Gideon having accepted payment that either A, he knows he didn't really earn it, but he's willing to encourage Israel to go ahead and act on that suspicion that it is Gideon who saved you. Offer me money. (laughs) Give me money. Give me gold. 1,700 shekels. That should cover it. What he could have said, not to play Monday morning quarterback, although it's Tuesday morning, so I guess I would be Tuesday morning quarterback. But what he could have said to Israel is, nah, it's fine. God is the one who delivered you. I didn't deliver you. I was just being obedient. And then that gold and what he does with the gold, it becomes a snare, really. He could have spent that gold some other way. He instead invests it in a vanity project. Did God tell him to make an ephod? No. Is there any indication that any good came of making that ephod? No. That ephod was a trophy, and the trophy served as a reminder to Gideon and all of Israel and Gideon's household that, you know what, maybe we did actually do something really great there. See, false humility is a bad thing. Don't be fake humble. Humble bragging is one of the most annoying things in the world. It is just one of the most annoying things. And the church, Christians, listen, we need to get better at this. We need to be more resistant to the humble brag. False humility is not really humility. Have genuine humility. How much worse actually is it if there's a false humility, like I think Gideon is displaying when he says, I will not be a ruler over you, neither will my sons. Oh, wow. Okay. What a what a humble guy. Well, maybe it's not humility. Maybe 
It was that he didn't want the responsibility. Maybe he didn't want the hassle. He's busy. He's got other things to attend to, but he will take the money. Ooh. You know, just a thought. If he would have agreed to being a ruler over Israel and taking the money, maybe he would have been clued into a lot of places that that money could have been spent and invested that would have been good for Israel and helped Israel to stay on the straight and narrow. Maybe. Maybe not. It's impossible to know for us. Only God knows. But what he does instead is he rejects the responsibility and the mantle of authority beyond what God had called him to. And maybe that's just as well. Maybe that's fine. But he did take the money. And the money became a snare. 1,700 shekels of gold. That's quite a lot of gold, by the way. It's not a massive fortune, but it's still a pretty good bonus. $8,500 by some calculations could be what that comes out to. So it's not a fortune. It's not millions and millions and millions of dollars, but $8,500 worth of gold. That's still a pretty good amount of gold. $8,500 worth of gold being poured into a vanity project, a trophy. It was not a good investment. It was a bad investment. But then notice too, before we just skip on through, pass on through, notice too, the death of Gideon. He went and lived in his own house It says, verse 29, and he had 70 sons, his own offspring. So they weren't adopted in. They weren't other people's sons that he took under his wing. No, these were his own sons. That's quite a lot of sons. I have seven sons with an eighth on the way in November. Yesterday was exactly two months till the due date for Nathaniel. Job, Mullet, we're very excited to see him. Very much looking forward to meeting him in two months, thereabouts. But I have seven sons who have been born who are milling about the house as I speak, or they're still in their beds because it's the morning after all. Ten times that number you do not get from being married to one woman. And it says, lest we be very impressed with whoever Gideon's wife is, that he would have so many sons, 70 sons. It says here in Verse 30, he had many wives. He had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And it's important to note, it's good to recognize, as with the ephod, as also with some of how Gideon deals with certain men of certain cities or the elders and rulers of certain cities, and not everything that's being described here is okay or neutral, take it or leave it, not everything is good just because it's described without a corrective, without a value judgment or a moral judgment right alongside. There's a lot that happens in the book of Judges that is addressed elsewhere as being not what you should do, not good. Gideon is not a righteous man because he has 70 sons or because he has many wives, but I would contend how he is raising those 70 sons and his many wives, how they're being cared for, you have to wonder about based on his taking that $8,500, perhaps, possibly at least 1,700 shekels of gold, how he's taking that and investing it in a vanity project could lead one to reasonably wonder, how's he taking care of his wives and his children? How many wives does he have? We don't know. It says many wives. So maybe he had 10 wives. And each one of his wives 
had as many sons for him as my wife Lauren so far has brought into the world. Quite probably not. Quite probably he had more than 10 wives. Maybe he had 20. We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says many wives. But it's not commented on. It's not told to us that this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just stated. And one could reasonably wonder why, right? Why is this in here? Why are we told this? Well, if I speculate, if I can just venture a little bit of a guess, I think this is told to us in part because how do you get so many wives coming out of having been hiding grain when the angel of the Lord comes to you with a mission from God? How do you go from that to where you're at at the end of your life? Did he have so many sons? Did he have so many wives prior to God having called him a mighty man of valor, sending him after the Midianites, delivering Israel from the Midianites and the people of the East? Did he have so many wives? Or, and again, this is speculative, does he have so many wives in part because it's of a piece with Israel having asked him to be a ruler over them? Verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. He says, I won't, but then he takes gold. And maybe, this is not spoken explicitly, but maybe besides just taking the gold, he also accepts the daughters of many prominent men who want to be associated with Gideon because that's the next best thing to Gideon being the ruler over Israel is if you can marry into or connect your family to Gideon by marriage. If there are 10 men, 20 men, 30 men who do such a thing, that would not be surprising. Not when we're talking at a national level, his getting national attention. And that would have been pretty typical of the culture at that time. Somebody who would be a king would have a lot of men either in the country, prominent men in the country, or prominent men and rulers of surrounding nations wanting to send women as a gift, as a present, as a way of solidifying ties between their households or between their nations. That was part of how diplomacy was conducted. Here, have the hand of my daughter in marriage. And because there would be so many men who wanted to have such ties and it was good for their household and their extended family that they presided over to be associated with somebody who was reputable, notable, well-connected, well-respected, they didn't care over much whether the man in question that they were trying to establish ties with already had a wife or several wives. Maybe all the more rather than less, the more wives he has, all the more will our stock go up as a family by connection through marriage to this man. But then also too, which carries more weight in our minds? Which should carry more weight in our minds? That Gideon had 70 sons born to him from many wives and a concubine as well who is singled out, interestingly. Did he not have many concubines? Did he only have one concubine? Most of the women who were in his household were wives to him, not concubines. We don't know. And yet there's one concubine who is mentioned generally in Shechem who bore him a son he called Abimelech. Abimelech is important, apparently. 
someone of note, someone to know. Seventy sons were not given all of their names here. We're given the name of one who was born to a concubine, even though Gideon had several wives, many wives, it says. But then, again, which carries more weight? That he had so many wives, that he had so many sons, in particular, we're not told how many daughters he had, but he had so many sons. Which carries more weight? That he had so many wives and so many sons, or that as soon as he died, it says, as soon as he died, the people of Israel turned again and made Baal Bereth their God. They didn't remember Yahweh their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they didn't show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And so we see the biblical text tells us Gideon had done quite a lot of good for Israel. And as soon as he was gone, his family was on their own. And that's unfortunate. That is a very unfortunate thing. But it's of a piece, it seems like, with Israel having forgotten God. And what you might take away from this is that for all the same reasons that Israel forgot God, they also were only interested in Gideon for as long as they were deriving a benefit from being connected to him. They really weren't interested in honoring him because they loved him. They were honoring him so that they could be seen by everybody else for honoring him because they derived a benefit from honoring him. If they sent their daughters to be his wives, to get children that would be sons of Gideon, that was for their benefit. If they worshiped Baal Bereth instead of Yahweh, again, that was for their benefit. They perceived more benefit in the short term worshiping Baal, probably for very similar reasons. When it says whoring, they whored after the Baals they hoard after the ephod. This is the slippery slope. And just like there are consequences for the way we relate to a man's family based on whether we actually love the Lord our God, there are also consequences, or you should say maybe there are things that our fellow travelers, certain trends that are fellow travelers with a low regard for God with regards to how we love one another. We don't see Gideon's memory being honored with taking his family under the wings and the watchful protection of these other men. Also, interestingly, when you have that many sons, what comes of them? What becomes of these 70 sons? They say, I'm a son of Gideon. Well, 70 of you are sons of Gideon. So what? I like that one better. I don't like you. They went from be a ruler over us you and your son and your grandson and him declining that to completely forgetting about Gideon's family. It's spiteful, it's ungrateful, but it's consistent with idolatry and a forgetting of God that a people would become ungrateful and forgetful, selfish and negligent. You could argue that they had a responsibility to Gideon's family after he passed and that this is a mark against Israel that they forgot Gideon's family. They did not, verse 35, they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel, which implies that they should have. That they didn't, and it's commented on, implies that they should have, which is to say he should have gotten some credit, but 
Was he concerned sufficiently with what he was leaving for his children and his children's children? Maybe not. And maybe for the same or similar reasons, and this is conjecture, this is speculative, admittedly, but maybe for the same and similar reasons that he rejected the ask to be a ruler over Israel, he also didn't sufficiently attend to what he was setting up in the way of provision and protection for his wives and for his sons and surely daughters as well after he was gone. And that is a cautionary tale, my friends. On a different note, though, let's talk a little bit about a post over at Not The Bee from Edward Teach from September 2nd. A Delaware lady bought this painting in a thrift store for $4. Turns out it's worth at least $250,000. Astrobel1 on Twitter, or X now, which I can't get used to, calling it X. Why X? Maybe it was some coding that they were trying to fix. I don't know. Astrobel1 tweets out from the dailymail.co.uk NC Wyeth painting bought for $4 at a thrift shop to sell for $250,000 at Bonham's auction, Daily Mail Online. A Delaware woman who thought she had bought an old painting for $4 at a thrift shop is expected to sell it for, based on my math, 62,500 times what she paid for it. That is remarkable. Now, speaking personally, this painting is very cool. N.C. Wyeth is one of my favorite artists. I have a whole Pinterest board of just art, and it has led to me discovering that I like artists who are like artists that I knew I liked. N.C. Wyeth is one who cropped up again and again after I started pinning Norman Rockwell illustrations. And as it turns out, N.C. Wyeth Very similar style of telling a story in his paintings, in his art. You get a story, you get a sense of drama and personality and place and time, and there's a gravitas to N.C. Wyeth and his works. And as it turns out as well, there was a family of Wyeths. It was kind of a family thing that they did, which is great. But this painting in particular, I would have picked it up too. And... Quite frankly, I would have picked it up and probably just hung it on the wall and said, hey, cool. (laughs) Nice. N.C. Wyeth. I like N.C. Wyeth. Imagine being this woman in Delaware, having bought this thing just because I like it, right? I like it. I think it looks great. And then somebody comes along and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you know what you have here? The reason I bring this up in part is... Because sometimes what we think we have is not worth nearly so much as what we estimate it to be. Sometimes what we actually have on hand is worth far, far more than what we appreciate. And it just goes to show you should not be quite so quick to discard valuable things. Imagine being the person who let this get away, perhaps You're the child or the grandchild or a landlord of somebody who passes away and you don't want this thing. You don't like it. It's whatever. Yeah, just get rid of it. Take it to the thrift store. We don't want to throw it away. It's a nice painting, but I don't want it. 
It's not really my style. Can you imagine if you were the person who dropped this thing off at the thrift store and you discarded it and then it turned out that now it's in the headlines and you're reading the headlines and now you realize, oh my word, do you know how much that thing was worth? If you were that guy, you'd be kicking yourself. Like, ah, what? What? You've got to be kidding me. But then it's too late. You give it to the thrift store and it's gone. And the thrift store sells it to this gal and it's gone. And it gets sold for $250,000 and it's gone. But then what you can do with a cool quarter million dollars is quite a lot, actually. In some places, you could still buy a home for that or maybe pay off a mortgage that you still have. That's quite a bit of money. That's life-changing money. If you're middle class or poor, if you're the kind of person that shops at a thrift store because you have to, this could be life-changing. This is like winning the lottery, which is fantastic. Very, very cool. If you shop at thrift stores just because you like finding cool stuff, which I love, right? I love checking out thrift stores and seeing what you see. It's like a little museum sometimes. And other times you find maybe not anything worth as much as all that, but you find something neat, something cool. And you say, ah, man, this is like treasure, right? It's like, I would imagine the people who go out with metal detectors on beaches and they find gold coins that some pirate forgot or whatever. Some bank robbers were trying to hide the loot after pulling off a daring heist. And here you are with your little $50, $100 metal detector, and now you're a millionaire, right? It's kind of like that sometimes, maybe to a lesser extent, going to a thrift store and finding something that you didn't expect to find, but you're like, yeah, that's really cool. And somebody just basically threw it away. It's cool. They knew that it had some value and it would be a waste to just trash it, but they didn't appreciate the value. Like I'm going to appreciate the value. Yes, I will pay $5 for that. You bet I will. Proudly. I'd pay more than that or I'd be tempted to. But yeah, I'll pay $5 for that. I'll pay $4 for that. Very, very cool. But there's a larger point that is worth making here about what in our lives we underestimate and what we overestimate. As sad as it would be to pay too much for something that isn't worth what you bought it for, it's arguably sadder if somebody has something worth 62,500 times what they paid for it and they just discard it. They say, yeah, whatever. That's even more sad than somebody who pays a little bit too much for a thing, but it has it has value. It has worth. It is a value added to their lives or the lives of others. Maybe, just maybe, the lesson we should take away from this is similar to the lesson of what the kingdom of heaven is like. When Jesus is telling parables in the New Testament, he says, you can compare the kingdom of heaven to a man who found treasure buried in a field and he went home and he sold all that he had to buy that field. Why? Because whether everybody else, anybody else knew that there was treasure in that field was beside the point. Once you know that there's treasure in that field, you would be a fool to pass up the opportunity to get that treasure. I mean, just think of it like this. If you were to go into the thrift store and let's say this painting were still in that thrift store and you knew what it was, you saw it, you knew what it was, 
and you saw it going for a pittance and you forgot your wallet. You said, oh, it's five bucks, four bucks, uh, but I don't have my wallet on me. Uh, well, no biggie. I guess it'll go to somebody else. Whatever. No, 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 no. That's not what you would do. Not if you knew it was worth possibly a quarter million dollars. You would go home, get your wallet, take money out of the bank, stop by the ATM, and you would come get that painting. That's what you would do if you were wise. And yet we have inestimable wealth in God's word. The grace of God, even just having breath in our lungs, but we have more than that. In Christ, we have eternal life. And how often do we treat it casually like it's some painting that's just not our style? It belonged to our parents, belonged to our grandparents, and we just say, yeah, I don't really have room for it. I mean, I don't want to throw it away, but I don't have anywhere to put that. Too often, I think. Too often. Switching gears, though. And along those lines, my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, sent me an article over the weekend. Actually, he sent me a whole bunch, a whole slew of articles. He had a backlog of open tabs on his browser, and he's just like, here, 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 here. Sorry, here, here. <laughs> now I can close these tabs. Well, now they're open tabs on my browser, J.P., and now I have to talk about them before I can close them. <laughs> Thank you to JP, as always, for sending me really good content to mull over. My last name is Mullet, after all. A polity undone. Timon Klein, I think I'm saying his name right, or am I getting confused with the Lion King? Timon, Timon, Mr. Klein, Tim, can I call you Tim? There are some who call me Tim. July 21st, 2023. A polity undone. He writes, parental rights are not enough. The all-powerful, all-encompassing 14th Amendment can guarantee them in the most strident terms, but they are still not enough to shield us from the gathering storm. As a species of a liberal rights-based regime, parental rights are subject to the same limiting principle of all other rights in a liberal order vis-a-vis harm informed by the primacy of the individual and his subjective actualization. Insofar as it goes, confining the purview and action of parents to the good and welfare of their children is, on its face, legitimate. Surely we can agree that parents should not be allowed to abuse or neglect their children. The real action, however, is in the definition and scope of abuse and neglect of harm. In our current legal order, the meaning of harm and, conversely, welfare has been farmed out not to judges, as most assume, but to experts, regime professionals, increasingly the psychologized individual reigns supreme. Welfare, the child's best interest, is dictated by professional opinion unto liberation from traditional anachronistic constraints and must therefore account for updated popular conceptions of the good, of virtue, of fulfillment. In any case, whether a standard of the child's best interest or parental fitness formally governs, the inquiry yields the same results. Perhaps unavoidably, in family law, a predominantly state-based field of doctrine, judges are afforded significant discretion. Even liberal critics lament that the best interest standard amounts to whatever judges prefer. Again, in itself, this is not the problem. Judges, the trier of fact, must judge after all, and any pretending to automated neutrality is a fantasy that strips law of its human form and practice. Rather, it is the accepted official endorsed 
publicly reasoned definition of best interest of welfare as laundered through expert testimony that troubles us. In other words, the established anthropology and indeed theology always control as much as originalists and constitutionalists may long for a neutral statute parsing grammarian for a judge. Such discretion as exhibited in discrete state-centric legal fields like family law are unavoidable. Again, someone must make the call. Someone must actually judge, but this judgment is never detached from, shall we say, cultural ex parte opinion. Now, let me just pause right there. I'm going to pause the narrative flow of this. It's a medium-sized article, medium to long-sized essay. Let me pause Timon, Timon, Tim, Mr. Klein. He's making an excellent, excellent point. This is very important to appreciate. Someone must judge. Think here of the Apostle Paul writing in the New Testament, chiding the Corinthians, asking them why they take matters before unbelievers to judge. What is Paul getting at? He's basically saying a couple of things. One, when you take these matters before unbelievers, you're harming your own testimony. You're harming the testimony of the church. You're harming the reputation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're harming the reputation of your fellow believers. When believer takes believer to unbelievers to mediate disputes, you are basically making us all look bad, and you're making the truth look bad. One or both parties are not living up to what God has called us to. It would be better for you to just suffer wrongs than for you to wrong one another and wrong all of us and harm the testimony, the reputation of the gospel when you take your lawsuits before unbelievers. But then Paul doesn't stop there, right? The pacifist might read that as just turn the other cheek within the church. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go to him and explain to him how he has sinned against you. And he's supposed to listen, but he won't necessarily. And when he doesn't, because sometimes he won't, you take along two or three witnesses, and if he won't listen to them, and he's just belligerent, he's beside himself, he's being stiff-necked, he's being stubborn, he's being proud and arrogant, he won't listen, he won't hear it, you take him before the church. And take him before the church, some people think, means you're only taking him to tell the church, this is what it is. This guy's out. Don't talk to him anymore. And when you take him before the church, some people take that to mean you take him only to the elders, and only the elders are going to judge these things. But it doesn't say that. When Paul asks, isn't there any among you who has wisdom to judge these matters? He is opening up the range of possibilities to anyone who has wisdom in the church discerning and judging the matters that are being disputed about. So you take it before the church because maybe the two or three witnesses that you brought along are not seen as credible on the material facts of this particular dispute. Maybe they're biased, or maybe that's the claim of your brother who you believe has sinned against you and he won't hear of it. He won't admit that. You take along your two or three witnesses, and maybe they're just the two or three people who are always going to take your side. And he says, yeah, your witnesses are tainted. This is a tainted jury pool. I don't accept your judgment or their judgment. No, no, I'm right in this. You guys are all wrong. You take it before the church and someone by God's grace, must have wit, 
must have wisdom. <laughs> someone, someone in the church must have wisdom to judge these matters. And also perhaps someone is going to know that they would be credible and they know how to talk to your brother who has sinned against you to where he will hear it. They understand how his mind works and what is bothering him. And there's maybe some talking past each other. They understand what it is that needs to be said here to make peace, to restore fellowship, to restore the relationship. But Paul chides, he scolds Corinth when he says, doesn't anyone among you have wisdom to judge these matters? Don't you know we're going to judge angels? Don't you know that the saints are going to judge the world? You're doing just the opposite. You're asking the world to judge the saints. We don't want that. We have the oracles of life. We have the truth. We've been set free by the truth. We have Christ. And you're basically giving a vote of no confidence for what that means as far as how we handle the truth of disputes among you when you go to unbelievers and you say they must know more. Whoa. If the answer to the question, doesn't anyone among you have wisdom to judge these matters, is in the negative? Actually, no, none of us have wisdom to judge these matters. Well, then you're being disobedient because we're told again and again repeatedly, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. We're told repeatedly throughout Proverbs to get wisdom, to get instruction, to get knowledge. You're either ignorant of those passages or you're disobedient because you should be getting wisdom. You should be. When you read that, it's a command. Get godly counsel doesn't mean you always take what purports to be godly counsel. Some of the advice, by the way, that is given in the New Testament and in the Old Testament is not good advice, but sometimes it's very good advice. And the only way to know for sure whether it's good or not good advice is to check it against what God has said. If the person giving you advice is pointing you back to what God has said and it all checks out and there's not more to the story, the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. That's why you want a multitude of counselors because these are all finite people after all, just like you are. If the other to cross-examine the first to state his case, points out some additional things. Oh yeah, that's a really good point. I missed that. The next thing you know, you're mitigating hazards and you're coming to a narrowed down scope of what would be best to do in this case and what would be best to not do in this case. What you should say and what you shouldn't probably say and who you should say it to and how you should say it. What you should do, when, how, where, with whom. All of that is also relevant All of those mechanics are also relevant when we're talking about a judicial system, which as often as not sees unbelievers presiding in a de facto godless way over the family. Tim, if I can call him that, Klein, over at the American Reformer, is exactly right that this is subjective and in the eye of the beholder, and that's not necessarily proof that it's wrong, but it doesn't go without saying that we need more than just somebody to judge. We need those who judge to judge with right judgment and not judge by appearances. Jesus says, don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. How do you get right judgment? Well, you go to the word of God. For too long, the church has been abdicating the role of judging with right judgment. Christians in this country have been told, they've been warned in the strongest possible terms, don't you dare judge with right judgment because if you do, That's not loving. But wait a second. Wouldn't it be protective? Wouldn't it be provisional? Wouldn't I help people who are in poverty to get out of poverty 
if I judged with right judgment and helped them to make good decisions that are going to be profitable and that are going to create wealth, generate wealth, protect wealth for multiple generations, wouldn't that be loving of me when I see them homeless, wearing shabby clothes, hungry, destitute? Wouldn't that be loving of me to judge with right judgment? If I see them being oppressed, wouldn't it be loving for me to judge with right judgment that the one who's oppressing them, depriving them of their rights, should be opposed, should be held accountable, should be objected to, confronted, stood up to? Shouldn't I open my mouth like Lemuel was told by his mother growing up from little on up? She said, open your mouth for the oppressed. This was the reason why she said it was not for kings to drink strong drink and wine and forget justice because... Their job as kings is to open their mouths for the widow and the orphan, the fatherless, it says. It's not just any old orphan. Maybe the mother's in the picture. But if the father's not, then this son, this daughter, needs you to be an advocate for them and to speak up on their behalf. And if that gets twisted in a godless way, it's judging by appearances and not judging with right judgment. And even when parents are actually protecting the welfare of their children, If what has been framed as the welfare of our children is giving them puberty blockers, changing their pronouns, putting boys in dresses and girls in butch clothing, cropping their hair short, pumping them full of testosterone, mutilating their bodies, if that is what the godless are increasingly deciding is the welfare of this child and you as a parent are protecting them from that or you're trying to, You can have your kids taken away in some states, in some localities. It's not enough though, right? Just like it's not enough to say we need judges to judge. We need a civil magistrate. Submit yourself to the governing authorities. It's not enough to just say that. We have to get down to what is right. Romans 13 doesn't just say be subject. It also tells us the purpose of civil government is to restrain evil, to punish those who do what is evil. What happens when the civil magistrate starts punishing those who do what is good, like parents who are trying to protect their children or provide for their children or train up their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, the awe and reverence of the Lord, the love of the Lord? For that matter, what happens if we think, to Mr. Klein's point, if we think that parental rights are sufficient, but yet we're just shifting the problem to parents? In too many cases, if we shift the problem to parents and we say, ah, it's the parent's right to choose. Well, wait a second. We still need to be informing ourselves with right judgment. Parents have rights over their children, but the parents still need to be subject to what God says is right, that they would reward their children when their children do what is good. Otherwise, they're negligent. It's still important when we talk about parental rights that parents would punish What is evil? Whether that's evil that's being done against their children, that they would protect their children from that evil, or whether it's disciplining their children when their children do what is evil. A society full of fatherless children, sons in particular, but also daughters, typically means you have children growing up in the way they should not go, not being disciplined, not being corrected when they do what is evil. And when they're older, they don't depart from it. They They just get more clever. They get more sophisticated doing what is evil. The boys become violent thugs and criminals. The young women become, in all too many cases, gossips, loud, brash, attention-seeking in a selfish and obnoxious way, or they prostitute themselves, or all of the above. 
And these are the ills of society that we're seeing play out right now in real time. And it's not enough to say parental rights, parental rights, parental rights. We have to, as the church, as Christians, teach the civil magistrate what is good that they would reward, teach parents what is good that they would reward, teach the civil magistrate what is evil that they should be punishing and protecting us against and restraining, and teach parents the same thing. And if we're not doing that, then we have a very truncated view and unfortunately a not particularly wise view that's going to not lead to good things. It's not going to lead to good outcomes. Something like an extension of the pro-choice argument can be embedded in the kind of an argument that we're making for why it's wrong that school boards are shutting off the mics for parents as they object to their children being given pornographic books to read for school. Something like the pro-choice argument would be wrong because you might be free as a parent to have your child do certain things or not let them do certain things or have your child be a certain kind of a person or not let them be a certain kind of a person. You might be free, and that doesn't mean that it's right. You have a freedom to do certain things or to allow certain things to be done or to not do certain things or allow certain things to not be done. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. And the only way we can know for sure whether it's right is, has God said this is a good thing to do? If he has, if he's commanded it or he's blessed all of us alike and said, do this thing, this is the way, walk ye in it, then we know, that's how we know that we have that right and that it is right. Parents, for instance, have a right to teach their children the Bible, to pray with their children, to lead their children to the Lord. Parents have a right to that. Parents have a right to feed and clothe and house and teach their children. How do I know? Because God commands parents to do those things. Parents have a right to discipline and correct their children when their children do what is evil or are sinful, or are disobedient. What do parents not have rights to do? Well, fathers don't have a right to frustrate their children, to provoke their children to wrath. And by that, we should understand provoke to wrath is not just anything that would upset your child, but provoke to wrath is you're intentionally trying to goad and aggravate them. You're tormenting them, actually. You're bullying your child. Fathers are not permitted to do that. Also, there's a certain passive aspect to it, I'm convinced, When a man fails to, refuses to provide for the needs of his family, particularly the members of his own immediate household, he's worse than an unbeliever. And if that is frustrating to God, then I think we also have a right to be frustrated about it, to see it as something men might be free to do. They might have the option to do that. That doesn't mean that it's good. They don't have a right to be negligent or abusive. So also, if we as the church, as Christians, have a freedom to not advise parents as to how to bring up their children wisely and well in a godly way, according to what God has commanded and according to the promises. Actually, there are great promises. It's not all just do this or else, punishment, wrath, curses. It's also if you do this, it will go well If you expect your children, require your children to show honor and respect to their mother and their father, their days will be long. It will be a grace and an honor to them. They will get length of days and a good reputation. They will have strength and wisdom that comes with that. Want that for your child. Want that for your children. Want that for other people's children as well. 
and encourage those who need to parent well, to do it well with that as the prize. Timon, Timon, Tim, concludes his essay in this way. As I've written elsewhere, while anthropology and other truths discernible from the light and law of nature are objectively true, consciences can be seared against it and minds clouded from it, social conditioning matters for pedagogy. The left gets this. That is why the Bible, which contains the summary of the natural law, has been replaced in public schools by pornographic, homoerotic sex manuals. The boundaries of abuse and neglect will inevitably be dictated by the public reason, by societal mores vis-a-vis human nature. It's simply a matter of which, not whether, and a true anthropology once reflected in Anglo-American law will not control absent social conditioning and pedagogy to instill proper assumptions and impulses, norms, and expectations. In a way, then, the short-term reaction facilitates the long-term solution. A new generation must be conditioned by true metaphysics, true anthropology, true theology before the law. Its procedures and provisions can be trusted again to rightly adjudicate the well-being of our children and secure the foundation of society itself. The family. Without this renewal, our polity is undone and parental rights will not save it. Well said. For instance, for example, consider the next story, this one from Chris Enlow over at theblaze.com. Six-year-old student allegedly bragged about gunning down his first grade teacher afterward. Newly unsealed documents revealed what the student, a first grader in Virginia, told the staff member who subdued him after he pulled out a gun and shot his teacher, Abby Zwerner, in the hand and chest. After the student shot Zwerner, a reading specialist working at Richneck Elementary School in Newport News restrained the child while waiting for police to respond. The boy told the staff members, I did it and admitted, I got my mom's gun last night. He then bragged about shooting Zwerner. I shot that bitch dead, the boy allegedly said. WKR-TV reported. Fortunately, Zwerner did not die, but she needed multiple surgeries to recover from the gunshot wounds. Since the shooting, Zwerner has filed a $40 million lawsuit against the school system, accusing officials of gross negligence. The lawsuit alleges that multiple school officials were tipped off that the student, who had significant behavior issues and a past history of violence, brought a gun to the school the day of the shooting, but failed to intervene to prevent the shooting. Now, let me just pause right there. The mother's in a whole lot of hot water. Deja Taylor is the mother's name. She's in hot water for negligence. The school is being sued for $40 million for negligence. This is a six-year-old boy. And where is the father? Where is the father? Where is the dad? Crickets. No mention of the dad. No mention of the father. I look at this story and I look at a six-year-old boy bringing a gun to school and having a history of violence. He's six years old. How does he have a history of violence? He's six. Also, who is in charge? This is what I write about, and this is why we homeschool. That's the book I published the very, very end of 2020, and this is why we homeschool. You can get it online pretty much anywhere books are sold. I have an ebook version, but there's also a paperback you can order have your own copy. If you live close by, bring it by. I'll sign your copy gladly. I'll give you a copy. If you are tight right now on the finances, I got you. But this is one of the things that I point out is that in the progressive 
it takes a village to raise a child mindset. Children are everyone's responsibility. And this is why it's so pernicious. When President Joe Biden says there's no such thing as other people's children, that's such a dangerous thing to say, not just because it encroaches on parental rights, but because it actually makes children nobody's responsibility. When something is everybody's responsibility, that's as good as saying it's nobody's responsibility. Children need a mother, but I would argue as important or more important to their mental, emotional, social, physical, and spiritual health, they need a father. The fatherless need a father. A six-year-old boy with a history of violence needs a father who takes him back behind the woodshed and spanks his sorry behind for being disrespectful, for being insubordinate, for being violent towards adults, for being violent towards his classmates. And if you think a six-year-old is not capable of these kinds of things, think again. What's this boy watching? What's he listening to? That he would say, yeah, I did it. And I quote, I shot that bitch dead. Six years old. He's watching movies and TV shows, and he's listening to music, and he's hanging out with probably people in the neighborhood, maybe extended family, maybe his mom's boyfriend's. I don't know. He's hanging out with people who talk like this, who act like this. And he's thinking, that's my aspirational model. When a child is everybody's responsibility, when it takes a village to raise a child, be careful because the village that that child grows up in may not be so hot. And the father is the one who's supposed to stand between the village and the child if the village values, the village morals are not actually promoting this child for doing what is good, promoting what is good to the child, promoting good examples, and also judging with right judgment. A father should be standing between the village and the child and saying, I will deal with my son when we get home. If there's a history of violence for a six-year-old boy in first grade, the father should be the one called into the principal's office and alerted, informed, told, hey, this is something that you're child is doing. This is how he's relating to other kids and adults around him. He's not being respectful. He's not behaving himself. In fact, he's violently lashing out. The father should be the one brought in and told. And when the child is disciplined, the father should be the one monitoring to make sure the discipline sticks. Is there a evil attitude taking root? Because this boy is watching movies he shouldn't watch. He's listening to music he shouldn't be listening to. He's hanging out with kids he shouldn't be hanging out with. The father should be the one monitoring all of that and saying, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. That is not good. That is not okay. No, no, no. You are not going to watch that. No, 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 no. You are not going to listen to that. No, 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 no. You're not going to hang out with those boys. They are a bad influence. What did you just say to your mother? What did you just say to that woman? What did you just say to that boy? If you ask me, that is who is not named here as having been negligent. And that is who has been negligent. And if the father passed on because reasons, some man should have been in proximity and looking out for the fatherless in his community. You mean to tell me there are no professing Christian men in the vicinity of this boy who see trouble coming and headed off at the pass and say, whoa, listen here, 
son. You're not my son, but listen, you can't act like this. This is not okay. Let me talk with you. Let me explain some things to you. Let me give you a better way. Let me give you some correction here so that you can be correct in your way of relating. It would seem that that is a blind spot and that is silence that is deafening in this story and in so many other stories like it in America today. In other news, Jake Offenhartz with the Associated Press has a piece up over at the Billings Gazette September 2nd, 2023, New York police will use drones to monitor backyard parties this weekend, spurring privacy concerns. Drones to monitor backyard parties. Those attending outdoor parties or barbecues in New York City this weekend may notice an uninvited guest looming over their festivities, a police surveillance drone, says the caption under the featured image. Here's a quote from the reporting. If a caller states there's a large crowd, a large party in a backyard, we're going to be utilizing our assets to go up and check on the party. Kaz Darty, the assistant NYPD commissioner, said at a news conference. Here's another quote, this one from Daniel Schwartz, a privacy and technology strategist at the New York Civil Liberties Union, is credited with, It's a troubling announcement, and it flies in the face of the POST Act. Deploying drones in this way is a sci-fi-inspired scenario. Now, let's take a moment, take a deep breath, and appreciate how this becomes all the more possible, all the more plausible, all the more of a problem when fathers are not involved in the lives of their children. One, because nature abhors a vacuum. So the fathers are not providing discipline and instruction and example and provision and protection for their sons and their daughters, all of a sudden we get into a circumstance where everybody's just doing whatever seems right to them in their own eyes. You get domestic violence, you get sexual assault, you get drug abuse, you get theft, you get all manner of wicked, vile, evil behavior. And law enforcement is bearing the sword for something to punish those who do what is evil, to reward those who do what is good. I guarantee you these surveillance drones are not going to be looking for people doing what is good so that the civil magistrate can reward those who do what is good. They're looking for people misbehaving in backyards so that the police can come in and apprehend suspects. But then this goes right back to Klein's piece at the American Reformer. Does the civil magistrate judge rightly, judge according to right judgment, what is good that they would reward if they even are still in that business at all in our country, or put another way, does the civil magistrate understand what is evil that they should punish? And for that matter too, what's the potential for abuse? If we all just accept that this is now where we're at, this is what it's going to be. Ever more surveillance. Your every move, even in your own backyard, is going to be surveilled. Police are going to use drones to supervise your private backyard parties, is there potential for punishing people who are being entirely innocent? Is there the potential for voyeurism, actually, as well? Somebody's got a backyard, and they're out there sunbathing, and nobody's supposed to be looking at them, nobody's supposed to be watching them, but here comes a surveillance drone, and the cops at the local PD now get to 
take a peep. This is every bit as much of a probability as when you have travelers at the airport having to go through body scanners, which present an image of their body without any clothes on so that we don't have to do a strip search. Well, that's very convenient, but it's still concerning that you're basically undressing innocent people on the presumption of guilt until innocence has been proven. Oh, they could be hiding anything under there. Yeah, like their naked bodies, for instance, for example. Thanks for that. People could be doing anything in their backyard. Yeah, exactly. They could be doing anything in their backyard. And do you mean to tell me that their own backyard is not going to be a private place for them to do things which might be entirely appropriate or legitimate or lawful or good for them to do? Because now the police might be zooming in, hovering about, inspecting, surveilling. On the one hand, this could be presented to you as an indictment on where we're all at as a society, and that might be fair. Where are the fathers teaching their sons and daughters for generations to do what is good and to avoid what is evil? But on the other hand, too, where are the fathers, where are the husbands to say to local law enforcement, whoa, 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 not so fast. (laughs) I'm not comfortable with that. Whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't ask for that. I don't like it. Nope, 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 nope. If I'm a father, I'm thinking I don't especially want some police drone checking out my daughter in my backyard or her backyard if she is off by herself. If I'm a husband, I'm thinking if my wife is in the backyard, I don't want some police drone surveilling my wife. I got this, right? I'll make sure my wife and my daughter are looked after. We'll call you, right? Don't call us. We'll call you if we have a problem that we can't handle. But then what if the problem could get to be abuse of police powers where it's turned right around? It's turned on its head. The presumption of innocence until guilt is proven is turned on its head. What are you trying to hide back there? Huh? What are you doing back there? If you're not doing anything you shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't have anything to hide. Well, no, wait a second. It's not as simple as that because the person wanting to look into everything may not be always operating from the best of intentions. And it is appropriate for there to be certain boundaries, certain limits. You don't just go rummaging through my underwear drawer because, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe he's got drugs in there. Wait a second. No, 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 no. Hypothetically, could somebody be hiding drugs in their underwear drawer? Sure. Do you have any probable cause whatsoever? The whole reason why we have warrants required in most cases for law enforcement to go searching someone's vehicle or someone's property, someone's house, is because it's right there in what we call it, warrant. Some searches can be unwarranted and they can actually be an abuse of power, an abuse of authority in a way that's oppressive. And what that in turn does actually is it undermines respect for the law. When the law becomes arbitrary and totalitarian, and this seems very totalitarian to me that you're going to surveil people's backyards, even if they have a privacy fence, we are getting further and further afield away from the presumption of innocence and therefore due process and also requiring warrants for reasonable searches and seizures of property when a crime is 
suspected to have been committed or is being plotted or is in the process of being committed. But to say, we're just going to collect all of the data and then we'll look through it and we'll figure out who's committed crimes and then we'll go after them. (sighs) Public spaces, that's one thing, right? When you're out in public, you do not expect to have privacy per se. That's what it means to be out in public. Say, for instance, I record a podcast and I publish it. If I made the decision to put this podcast out in public, what I say on this podcast no longer could be said to have any right to privacy. Now, if I say something on this podcast, which gives somebody a reasonable suspicion that I may be committing crimes against God and man, and then that turns into, hey, we'd like to take a look at this or that or the other thing, that's normative. That's traditional. That's in keeping with our legal system. That's in keeping with our constitution. But if I'm having a private conversation, and this actually more or less happened yesterday, we think, I was having a private conversation with my wife and our children at the table after doing some reading on how attitudes towards family and marriage changed in England between the years 1500 and 1800. This is when the rise of the idea of the nuclear family as we know it came about right alongside industrial revolution, the industrialization, modernization of the West first but also the erosion of the extended family as a meaningful measure or body politic happened in this time. I'm talking with my wife and my children at the table about the nuclear family and about extended families. And I kid you not, a few short hours after, if that long, it might've even been within the hour, my wife sends me an article from The Atlantic from 2020 about how the nuclear family was... A mistake. It was a mistake. And here's why. Because we've lost the value of the extended family. We've lost the value of the extended family in our conceptions. And we prefer autonomy, liberty over stability. The extended family gave stability and a buffer and a support network and a safety net socially. We decided we preferred with industrialization and modernization, we preferred many of us to be autonomous families, nuclear families. And then from that, further atomization came as the individual within the family became more important than the family unit, even in a nuclear sense. And next thing you know, this is cropping up. My wife sends it to me and I'm glad she did. I was like, oh, thank you. But then I thought, I'm like, where did you find this? Because I knew she was busy homeschooling the kids. And it would have surprised me if she went looking for it. Maybe she'd already been reading on it. And I was thinking, oh, that'd be cool if you were already kind of thinking along these lines. We just happened to be kind of researching it out around the same time. She says, actually, that just popped up in my Facebook feed. Really? Were you searching for it? No. And what's curious is we weren't sending messages on Facebook Messenger back and forth. But here comes this message in the Facebook feed from Facebook curating her newsfeed based on, it would seem, the conversation that we're having, but it's curating her feed based on what I was saying at the dinner table to her and the children, which is to say, and this is very plausible, very probable, why wouldn't you do this if you can do it, especially if you're trying to engineer society, re-engineer the world, it would seem that speech-to-text converted what I was saying to my wife and our children into algorithmic 
driven results in her Facebook feed. And wait a second, wait, 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 wait. Now, not only if that's happening, not only are they taking what I post to Facebook or what I say in Facebook Messenger and turning that into what drives my Facebook feed, her Facebook feed, your Facebook feed. Now, maybe they're even just taking things that I'm saying around my phone in presence of my phone and turning those into data points, as in they're constantly surveilling the things that I'm saying in the home at all times, as long as my phone is close by. What in the world? Did you sign up for that? Did I sign up for that? I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's not for no reason that Facebook and Twitter and Google are free. They're free because you're the product. You don't have to pay for these invaluable parts of everyday life now because you're the product. You're the one being sold. Access and control over your engineered choice is the product. And that is being sold. You are being sold to the highest bidder. In conclusion, though, let's consider all of these things together and let's ask the question, what should we do with the information? What should we do? What can we do? Is there a practical application for knowing these things, thinking about these things? Consider Judges chapter 8. You have kings of Midian. After seven years of Israel living under oppression at the hands of Midian, everything being consumed, all surplus, livestock, grain, anything that wasn't nailed down or hidden being taken by these kings, this people. God raises Gideon because the people cry out. They're oppressed. They ask God to deliver them. God raises up a judge in Gideon. Gideon, cautious, cynical, is confirmed by God in the call to fight, to muster the forces, to rally the men of Israel against Midian. God fights for Israel. God delivers his people. God relieves them of those who don't just oppress them in an abstract way, but they are oppressing them in part by swooping down and taking everything surplus, all surplus wealth. It's not possible to accumulate wealth, to build strength, to even have rest. You can't rest when at any moment the Midianites might swoop in and take your harvest. This is very similar to Calvera and his men in the Magnificent Seven. They swoop in at harvest time and they take the food away from the village people. Here is Gideon and 300 men, like the Magnificent Seven almost, but better, called by God, equipped, empowered, guided by God, and God fights for them. And what do they do? First, they forget God. Next, they forget Gideon. The danger passes, and they go right back into their old ways, just right directly back into worshiping Baal. Gideon dies. Do they honor his memory? Do they show love to his family out of honor for his memory? No, they do not. They completely forget all about him. They wanted to make him ruler and his son after him and his grandson after him. Hey, let's just lock this down. Let's put you in charge. 
they were already forgetting that it was God who had delivered them. When they took the wrong lessons away, Gideon, for his part, takes perhaps $8,500 worth of gold earrings, melts them down, turns them into an ephod, and all of Israel, it says, goes whoring after this ephod. That's the word. That's the biblical term. That's the theological term for it, whoring after this ephod, because the ephod is a trophy of victory against the Midianites. Why would we say that it's whoring? Why would the biblical text say that it's whoring? Because they're worshiping this idol. They're congratulating themselves. They're honoring themselves. Even when they perhaps give their daughters to Gideon to be additional wives, they're honoring themselves. When they ask Gideon to be a ruler over them, they're honoring themselves. When they forget Gideon, as soon as he's gone, as soon as he dies, they don't look out for his wives and his children. They are still honoring themselves. And they go right on honoring themselves when they decide to worship the Baals, the lords, that is the demons, the false gods of the Canaanites, the false gods of the surrounding nations. They honor themselves when they say, we have the freedom to do it. We're going to do it. There's a benefit to be had. We curry favor. Maybe it'll go better this time. They honor themselves, not first and foremost, over and against the memory of Gideon, but over and against God, who says, you will have no other gods before me. Did they have the right to worship other gods? No, they did not. Did God give them the freedom to do that? Did they choose according to their nature, which was selfish, wicked, sinful, stiff-necked, stubborn, idolatrous? Yes, they had the freedom, but they didn't have the right. They exercised their freedom, and what we will find in the next chapter is they suffer the consequences. They fooled around, and they'll find out again, but they won't learn. If they had remembered one simple truth— that it was God who delivered them. It was God who provided for them. It was God who had given this land to them in the first place. It was God who would maintain them in the land and bless them with honor, with wealth, with security, with long life, sons and daughters, grandsons and granddaughters, enjoying the fruits of vineyards and gardens and fields that they had not planted, resting in homes that they had not built and cities that they had not built, If they had remembered that one simple fact, it would have been the equivalent, maybe even just a little bit, of having picked up the N.C. Wyeth painting at a thrift store in Delaware for four bucks and finding that it was actually worth a quarter million. It would have been the difference between buying a cup of coffee on the way to church, work, school, and on the other hand, being able to pay off your mortgage and live debt-free unperturbed, at least in some parts of the country still. Those today who think parents will save the day are dead wrong. The problem with how public schools are relating to children is not, first and foremost, how the public schools are relating to children. It's how parents have been relating to children in a very hands-off, negligent way, just like the mom of the kid, the six-year-old boy who shot his first grade teacher. Parental rights are not the answer in a vacuum. Parents need to be taught by God what is good that they would teach their children to do it and to walk in it. What is evil that you would discipline and correct your children when they do it. Fathers are needed 
Parental rights in the abstract misses the point. The fatherless need fathers, period. Enough with the toxic masculinity as the other side of the coin to saying that it takes a village to raise a child. No, you need mothers and fathers, but in particular, especially you need fathers. The stats bear that out. It's science. It's a fact. Trust the experts. No, I don't know. Trust God. God's the expert here. Okay? Make God the new expert in your heart. (laughs) When we forget that, as Americans, I think we're in the same boat that Gideon and Israel were in. We come through some crisis and we forget God. And if someone is raised up by God to deliver us from our oppressors, and then we take the wrong lessons from that, and we think this person answered our prayers, instead of God answered our prayers, we will do exactly like Israel did, and we'll go worshiping other gods and honoring ourselves and being dishonorable towards those that we should thank. And we should thank people who contribute. Gideon deserved credit for playing his part. It was a supporting role, but he deserved credit for that. And they should have honored his memory and they should have looked after his wives and his children after he was gone. Shame on them that they didn't. But look at what we're doing right now with former President Trump. He's out of office. Well, let's move on. No, 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 no. That's dishonorable. Even if he weren't the best pick, and I think personally Ron DeSantis is a better pick for the Republican nomination in 2024, I am on the DeSantis side of this. I think he's done a phenomenal job in Florida. He would be a much better pick to be president of the United States. Even though I think that, I also think for as long as Trump lives, as long as his children are still around, the way that they served this country, and they did a great service for this country, should not be forgotten. They should be thanked and looked after and honored. And what the left is doing What the radical left is doing to the Trump family and has been doing, it is shameful. It is evil. It's evil, friends. It is not equal protection of the laws or equal subjection to the laws. You talk about right to privacy. What's happening in New York City where we're going to fly police drones over backyard parties to surveil people who we have no reason to suspect are misbehaving, doing what is evil in their own backyards. That is an extension of what we are normalizing with regards to Donald Trump. If you are passive and silent and acquiescent when it's done to Donald Trump and his family and his associates and every member of his cabinet and his legal team, when they can be arrested on trumped up charges, no pun intended, when they can be booked, when they can be hauled into court, case after case after case, which aren't really designed to even lead to a prosecution necessarily, although I think they might accept a prosecution. They're just designed to harass, to punishment. The prosecution, the process itself is the punishment. It is the abuse of power. When that's the case and we just normalize that and we say, ah, well, he should have known better. We are setting ourselves up to be treated likewise. When this is done to us, what will we say and who will speak up on our behalf? When this is done to our loved ones, what will we say then? All of our silence will come back to haunt us with regards to what's being done to Trump and his associates and his supporters, his voters. But in part, this is what comes from the mindset that if somebody has authority, 
then whatever they do with it is their right. No, that's lawlessness. You do not have a right to do anything that you are free to do. That's lawlessness. Shame on anybody who comes to that conclusion claiming to be a follower of Christ and to be faithfully handling the word of God. No. For one, you might not be. For two, if you are, buddy, does not any among you have wisdom to judge this matter? Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Don't you know we're going to judge angels? How much more so? More so, not less so. More so matters pertaining to this life. In conclusion, what's being underestimated here is the value of remembering who delivers nations from their oppressors when they cry out to him. It's not me. It's not you. It's not whoever you think would be the best pick for president, whoever I think would be the best pick for president. It's God Almighty. He's the one who delivers nations. He's the one who judges righteously. He's the one who will see that he is not mocked and that a man reaps what he sows. We should sow to life and the spirit and righteousness and reap a harvest of the same tenfold, a hundredfold. 62,500-fold. <laughs> what we're underestimating is how impactful, how powerful that simple remembrance is when we will keep it in mind and how much of God's pleasure is derived from our believing that simple thing and then letting the implications follow as they will. If we lose sight of that, maybe we get a temporary reprieve and then we go right back like a dog to the vomit. We go right back. And maybe we're in even worse straits than we were the last time around. But the only thing for it is going to be remembering who actually delivers nations from their oppressors. And yes, God does use human agents. And no, biblically, it's not always the people you would expect. In fact, sometimes they're people you can find a lot to criticize in. But if that's where you say, oh, no, there's no way God could, you reveal that you have not been reading your Bible. You've not been studying it. You've not been paying attention. You're missing it. Start with the premise that God is the one to turn to and work out from there how he has shown himself willing to answer such prayers that he would deliver his people. Start there and then assess the options and ask God for wisdom. If you lack wisdom, if the answer to the question is in the negative, doesn't any among you have wisdom to judge these matters? Nope. Nope. We sure don't. We sure actually no. We do not have wisdom to judge these matters. Sorry to say. I wish we did, but we don't. Mm. Well, then you know what you have to do next, don't you? Oh, no. What's that? Ask God. Ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. But believe and don't doubt, because if you're of two minds, you shouldn't expect to receive anything. I have to be careful about this. So do you. So do all of us. We have to be careful about being double-minded because what James says is that makes us unstable in all our ways. You zig and you zag, but really you never land. If you're double-minded, if you say, ah, maybe I should do this. No, maybe I should do the opposite. Maybe I shouldn't do anything. Guess what you're probably going to be doing? Nothing. Probably nothing. Is that wise? Is that honorable? Is that faithful? Is that obedient? Did God command you to do nothing? Did God command you to be double-minded or is that your own unbelief? 
I won't pretend to have everything figured out. I don't have all wisdom, but God does. I have that much wisdom to know that God has wisdom, all the wisdom, all of the riches and goodness of God in Christ is there. But do you believe that? Do I believe that? Do we talk like it? Do we live like it? Do we think like it? Do we feel like it? If not, well, we should ask God about that too. We should say, hey, I could use some help here. <laughs> Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. God is pleased by those prayers. Everything else that might be up in the air, negotiable, we'll see. We'll see what happens. God willing, we'll live and do this or that. That can be fine, right? That can be fine and wise in itself. But not instead of asking God for the kind of wisdom that is not marked by unbelief. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.